0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is LIVES, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Dr. Sashi Patel. Dr. Sashi Patel is a native Nebraskan who grew up in Kearney, attended Nebraska Wesleyan University and the University of Nebraska Medical Center before attending Duke University where he completed two fellowships in pediatric oncology and pediatric blood and marrow transplantation. He currently cares for patients at Children's Hospital and Nebraska Medicine within the Fred and Pamela Buffett Cancer Center and is assistant professor of pediatrics at UNMC. In addition to his role as director of pediatric bone marrow transplant, he is active in medical student education by giving regular lectures and directing the senior-level medical student simulated patient experience. He's the husband of Dr. Emily Patel and the father of two wonderful young boys. Sashi, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, wonderful
1: to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Let me start by asking, why did you become a doctor?
1: Yeah, that's. A, I wish there was one answer to that question. And and perhaps the joy of it is that there is many answers to that. And it's an intersection of a, of a lot of experiences, uh, personal experiences with family and friends with cancer, Uh, in the health related field. My, you know, my parents were not physicians. They were, um, they worked uh, in the motel business um, for a long time. And so, you know, it was first a passion for science and then a passion to help people and then being comfortable with children, uh, perhaps more so than adults at times. (laughs) I can be more myself around um, kids than I can adults. And that was a natural fit. And then there's nothing more driving to wake up for in the morning than a child who's suffering with cancer, or going through some sort of any chronic illness it doesn't have to be cancer. When you think your problems are uh, <laughs> big, and then you think about what's at work, it uh, puts things in perspective. So all those things and the the experiences and the the people you meet along the way all uh, is how I found myself in medicine and how I sort of found myself to keep. Striving for it and keep uh, and keep going at it.
0: How did that enjoyment of science show up for you as you were a child and then a teenager? It
1: was, you know, just an exploration of things, an exploration of wanting the answers to things and not being sort of satisfied and uh, perhaps to a point of annoyment <laughs> of my folks and the people around me. But uh, I was never satisfied with knowing the the bare minimum i wanted to kind of dive into the explanation for things and not take things for face value and that's kind of science it's uh it's not often what you believe but what is fact and and by science and um and you got and as i mature more as a physician you see that you see that that belief parallels very closely to to science um, at times and and that leads to either uh confidence and frustration and all of the emotions that go along with being a physician and, and helping
0: kids so you were raised in carney which is a small town of yeah, ten yeah. twenty thousand. 20,000 people uh, it was
1: about 20 to 25,000 at the time and so
0: so tell me uh, about your childhood
1: yeah yeah so um my childhood is sort of reflective of my parents story which i i think is a uh an inspiration for me and a beautiful beautiful story and, and so my parents uh were born in India, came to uh United States to San Diego in seventy two. They couldn't find a job. My dad had his masters in uh uh in civil engineering and my mother uh in uh physics and uh so uh, you know bright uh young people couldn't get a job. Um they went to Chicago after that, um in the late seventies, uh mid seventies, and uh worked in the factories on the south side of Chicago. Kinda literally Assembly line, as you can picture in your head when somebody says working in a factory, putting the, putting pressure gate, you know, little things on the assembly line and, uh, decided that wasn't for them. And somebody said, you know, Indians are having, uh, quite a bit of luck in, in the motel business. It's not the most, uh, uh, prestigious thing. It's, uh, you know, you got to clean toilets and make beds and stuff like that. They borrowed some money, uh, at that time, moved from Chicago to, Kearney, Nebraska. So we went from living down the street from O'Hare Airport, <laughs> that was our backyard, was the, the back fence to O'Hare, uh, to Kearney, Nebraska, <laughs> which is literally the middle of America. <laughs> and, um, you know, the rest is history. They worked hard in a little motel on Highway 30. I always joke that it was a little bit of a Norman Bates looking motel <laughs> in a, 10 rooms this way, five rooms this way. Um, and that's where we live, the sort of two bedroom apartment right there attached to the, the office of the motel and that was home you, you know it was frustrating as a child being you know uh the an indian kid in, in Kearney, nebraska uh is it can be difficult uh, for my brother uh, my older brother as well as myself and um but we learned some important lessons there as and watched my parents uh help them as soon as i could put a pillowcase on a pillow i was doing it um and then, uh, you know, as their success grew in the motel business, uh, as did our opportunities. And so, you know, seeing those things that we had to see and do and, uh, just put that work ethic in place, they became successful in the motel business and, and sort of, uh, you know, had other days in and things like that along the interstate and, and, uh, sold it and moved to Omaha. And they still to this day, <laughs> they, they sort of bought a, the house out in West Omaha, like you're supposed to do when you're, I guess. And, uh, they, they said, you know, this isn't us. We've never had neighbors. We've never had a fence and all this. And so they actually live in back in the one bedroom apartment, uh, above the motel that they still run here in Omaha. Um, and they, they're enjoying life with grandkids and all that.
0: You mentioned that your parents, were uh, in engineering and uh, and physics. Was there some sense of pressure as you were going through your middle and high school education that at, that at this point they they didn't necessarily want to see you as successful as they were. They didn't want to see you squander the opportunity for an education and a form of profession that was perhaps uh, representative of of what perhaps they'd had to leave behind.
1: Yeah, there, there's certainly that pressure to succeed. And, you know, and I, I never really thought I would be a doctor at that age or thought I even could, you know, I didn't high school. I didn't have straight A's and all this, you know, the good grades and all this stuff. It wasn't until, um, college where I really thought, Hey, I can be one of those kids over there and, and have those goals. My goals don't have to be sort of muted and, um, subdued a little bit because of, you know, opportunities, uh, that are different for people. And so, yeah, certainly there's that pressure to make them proud, you know, make them see that all their struggles, um, were for something, were not in vain a little bit. I have a feeling they'd be proud of me, whatever, but I, whatever I did, but I think, I think they're, I, I think they're happy. They say they're proud, uh, every once in a while, but they still put that nose to the grindstone and say, don't ever be satisfied. And, um, continue to push forward.
0: Boy, boy, boy. Boy I see you sitting out there all alone. Crying your eyes out. Cause the woman that your love is gone. Only the strong survive That's what she said Only the strong survive Only the strong survive Yeah, you gotta be strong You better hold on Don't go Around with your head What do you remember about your education as a medical student? Girl... It was difficult it was a
1: shock you know because you do go in as a undergrad student or a high school student your vision of what doctoring is or you know based on either what's tv or what your friend's dad or whatever is doing uh, or what your own experiences is you have this sort of altruistic look and there's certainly that piece um, but you very quickly get a reality check of the competitive nature of you know a hundred and Twenty so students all vying for success and not understanding that they've they are successful. They're in medical school, you know. They they've made it through this gauntlet and they're here. But you don't realize that in the time. In the time, it's just you want to be the best in the class. You want to be the best. You know, the study the hardest. And um, in that environment, now looking back, is certainly not healthy. It, it, in the moment. It's all that there is, you know, when you're a medical student, when you're in high school and college, you're in the moment, you're present and you don't see over the trench and you don't kind of put your head above the trench and look out and see what's across the way. You just kind of, you dig in and then you don't realize till you're done, man, did it have to be like that? There was excellent, amazing times, uh, friendships that you make, work ethic that you build and the character that you build, um. But yeah, then you see other students, your peers struggle, uh, in different ways. And looking back, I would think, man, I didn't say anything to so and so, or I didn't try to reach out to so and so. You know, they looked like they were struggling. They looked like they were having a tough time, but I was just in the moment. You know, you, you study, you do your thing and you, you get back through the next day. Um, so the rigors and the, and the, the, the stress and pressure of not failing is huge because um, it's a lot of investment in the debt that you go in the bar, you know, you don't even have that concept fully. You're not even mature enough to really understand what you're playing with monopoly money almost that you get in and then you get all these loans to, um, to complete medical school and it doesn't, you just sort of put it on the back burner and say, okay. But then you look back and you think, man, gosh, I, the emotional burden of all this and um, the pressures are, are
0: certainly there. I hadn't really thought about that ongoing burden, but do but you look back and think about those times in a way where you still carry some of the emotional or even the practical burdens of that? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I
1: think um, how do we all cope and how do we all move forward in a in a stressful environment? And some people cope well and and others don't. And the culture, you know, in the past, and I think any, you know, in my generation and generations before me, uh, have to admit that the culture was not positive for a long time (laughs) Um, in certain disciplines. It can be a beautiful experience um, and certainly is. um, But then there's times where letting somebody know you're not doing well, letting somebody know you have depressed feelings or symptoms or you don't feel good enough or I'm not good enough to finish medical school why am i here what you know all these sort of things i think my generation certainly the generation above me was kind of a closed lip you know you feel those things you tuck it away and you persevere and you get through i think then you know my generation um comes along and sort of starts to see a little bit of a problem with that but still you know we kind of put our head down and you know, stay in our lanes and things like that. But I think this next generation coming in, the medical students that I'm teaching, the uh, residents or the, you know, the trainees that are, um, quote, un, you know, for lack of a better term, under me or under my guidance or whatever, I think they are less accepting of silence when it comes to looking out for each
0: other and looking out for themselves. So you've mentioned a culture of student support. And this competitive atmosphere that you experienced, but now you're suggesting that the culture of being a medical student is slightly different now. And part it seems maybe that those are cultural forces, but maybe there is some intentionality as well behind uh, how how, uh, universities are teaching medical students. So speak a little bit, if you would, to that, to that bigger picture of what is life like now for medical students? Yeah. And
1: I, I, it, it is tough. I mean, it's certainly still the rigors and the pressures are absolutely still there. I don't want to take away and be that kind of the old curmudgeon that said back in my day, it was tough by God. And you guys have it easy. Absolutely not. No, they have pressures in different ways. And one thing I, I think in is the amount of information that and resources to study with are enormous, you know, and how to handle that and how, how does an educator navigate through that and how do they then identify in themselves, how do I learn best? How do I, I have internet, I have, you know, the world is at your fingertips in terms of information. Whereas perhaps in the past it was a book, handouts, library, and you didn't, Spend hours online trying to figure out what the, and have all these different resources that you do now. Um, and so I think the universities are, and medical schools are adapting to that and saying, we can't just hand somebody a textbook or hand somebody some slides and be done with it. You have to use technology. You have to use integrated experiences and practical experiences because that's how people learn now people learn for lack, I guess, lack of a better term, they want instant learn. You know, there's an instant check too. I mean, Nebraska and the university of Nebraska and and Nebraska medicine and and all these entities that uh, our students have the resources for, um, it's mind boggling. I mean, it's just the, the 3d, uh, patient experiences where you can simulate a Surgery gone wrong. You can simulate a uh, a birth complication if you're uh, being an obstetric resident or something. Um, you can practice any almost any surgery that you want without actually touching a human being. Um, those are all the technical aspects. But how do you then disengage from that, take that with you into the real world, and remember that now? It's not a mannequin, a piece of plastic or, a, or whatever you're practicing on. Now it's a human and the family and the kids of that family. Uh, and now you got to almost remember that the answer is one thing, but sometimes the patient expects the answer and expects you to get that. So that's not the goal. The goal is the whole experience and the patient experience.
0: So, continue maybe giving us an example of of some of these technical components. You you mentioned uh, a mannequin. Paint that picture for us. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, our medical
1: students have uh, numerous opportunities and and phases in their in their education where they go, you know, to a special facility to a facility a building, and they have a you know plastic mannequin. This mannequin uh, can be programmed to have a seizure to have their heart stop to vomit to anything i mean you name it uh these man these sort of life-sized replicas can do it and they do it in a thre- in an interactive way so it's not it's not as mechanical as it sounds when i explain it it is really you walk into a room these students get scenarios you know Joe Smith is a 22-year-old male who came in with a uh, gunshot wound. Uh, his heart rate and blood pressure, and on and on, is all this. Your the floor is now yours, <laughs> and based on their choices, gosh, you can have that person's heart stop, where they have to do CPR or, or you know code the patient. Um, and that is an immersion that is so important. I mean, because you don't want to have that. You don't want to have that. You don't want to be the one that is the first experience that that student or that physician has. You absolutely want that technology in place, and you want a thousand hours. It's like Kobe Bryant shooting a thousand free throws before he even goes to the game. It's uh, that's what you want out of your physicians is practice, practice, where it almost becomes mindless. Um, The process of saving a life and the process of a traumatic situation becoming mechanical in that sense it's good it's there's no hesitation there's a plan there's no wasted time however that ingrained mechanicalness can be to your disadvantage in other situations you know that the situation where okay now you've you've fixed the you've you've fixed the the gunshot wound. you've fixed the patient well now how do you go talk to the family or or say you didn't fix it now how do you go walk into the other room and tell uh, the mother, the, the sibling, the husband, wife, whatever, that all these technical things I did, right. I mechanically practiced everything in that room across the street. Aren't you proud of me? (laughs) You know? And it's like, well, no, uh, you do all those practical things for the chance to save a life. But then when you can't, then where's that practice?
0: the senior-level medical student simulated patient experience. Tell us about that. <laughs>
1: That's a five-cent word for saying uh, we bring people in. They practice being patients, uh, similar to that episode of Seinfeld where Kramer and his uh, friend go in and get a scenario. It's a little more structured than than that. But, uh, yeah, these are volunteers in the community so that uh, either have a healthcare background or sometimes not at all. They just want to help educate. Uh, they want to... Uh, be hands-on with that involvement uh, in the for these medical students. So we give scenarios to these patients. Say you're a 50-year-old uh, uh, female who comes in with this problem, and they sit in the, the simulated patient clinic. Uh, the patient is there. They're in a gown. They have a history that is to be elicited by the patient, um, and there's that human interaction that the student can have. So the student is given the scenario they practice like it's a real life clinic and a real life human being that's there. You're trying to help. So they have to knock on the door. They have to have the pleasantries. They have to have all the things that make you a good physician, um, that are more than just knowing the answer. Um, because the answer is a very, very important part, the diagnosis, you know, you got to have that diagnosis. Uh, but that whole healing portion and cure cure is different than healing. And, Many of us can cure something, but can we heal that person? And, and that's a different dynamic. Um, so that's what I try to teach. And that's what we're trying to do with these experiences. We want to give them as much dry run practice. The hard part is it is an artificial. You are in a, in a medical school building in an artificial clinic with a patient that you know is fake. <laughs> and, and so it's not always easy to simulate that. And our, our, our students struggle with that sometimes is, this doesn't seem natural, but that's when really good simulated patient volunteers make it natural. Um, and that makes it less of an issue when they go to the real clinic or they have real life issues. So it's not just people coming in with the scenario of a cough or whatever. Uh, our medical school goes through situations where, okay, you're the physician and you have to give the HIV results. You have to tell somebody that they have cancer. You have to uh, say, like the the trauma situation that I just mentioned, uh, you've been given this scenario where uh, a family member has died in a car accident and now th- they're in the waiting room waiting for you to explain how do you do it. Um, those are the ones I think are the most valuable, um, the most hard to recreate, but the most valuable because it does get, our simulated patients, they get into it, they 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 get angry, they cry, they you know, they hear a news of whatever and they get emotional just as you normally should. Um, and so students have to adapt to that a little bit. But it's all in the effort to bring them out of the books a little bit, out of the what does the textbook say or what did the book say and now how do I engage, how do I show empathy.
0: Why was this development in the education of medical students Thought of as necessary, how has it developed over time? The idea of simulated patients and
1: modeling and experience a a, a scenario has been around since the six you know in the sixties. The technology and the the way in which we do it has evolved over time. Where it was just a you know a rubber mannequin that you did CPR on. It started with we need to put healthcare providers in situations where we can improve outcomes of patients, period. We need to save lives, you know, out in the community or in the hospital. and We need to do it quick and without hesitation. How do we do that? Well, we make a scenario. We make a, a, a mannequin that represents that. And then it's just evolved into, as technology grows, as people's way that they learn changes, the mannequins get more sophisticated. The scenarios get more f- sophisticated. So where it used to be, it's just cPR or Heimlich maneuver sort of practice uh, those sort of education pieces it's now seizures and and heart attacks and and strokes and and, and like I said the deliveries of complicated uh, birth, uh, birth deliveries and things so it's evolved in that sense in a positive way. what has gone perhaps in the last maybe five ten years perhaps is more the human the more of the Re-reenacting those human exchanges, I think that is an evolving piece. I think technology kind of goes and does its thing. It's very easy to make a mechanical situation, like a gunshot wound, or whatever, but it takes real effort and time to create a scenario about an HIV result or a uh, a lost pregnancy or a or you you name it. Those difficult human interactions, and the reason it's needed is because they don't happen often, you know, it's, you know, depending on what you go into in my field, I mean, I do pediatric cancer, so I have to deal with this every day, but um, oftentimes it's not something you experience every day or, or have to do. And so you need that practice to get your mind right. Um, And so I think that's where it's gone and where it's going is just giving people the opportunity to be in as natural a situation as you can, to expose your own fears, expose your own anxieties, expose those things that you think you know, and you think, oh, it's just a human interaction. But the in real life, you need to be exposed to what makes you nervous, what makes you scared, beliefs, what your life experience, what your story brings. We started what what my story is. I bring that bias into a conversation, and whether it's good or bad. Uh, to a new, talking to a parent of a child who's been newly diagnosed or has to go through transplant. Those are experiences that are unique to the individual. And I don't think they come out. And maybe perhaps they shouldn't come out in the real situation. They should come out in a simulated situation. Um, that way you know what triggers you, what your biases are, what your strengths and weaknesses are.
0: In some ways, what I feel you describing is amplifying the integration of the human aspect of providing healthcare to patients, which sort of begs the question, where did the human go? Uh, and, and that then makes me wonder, has the, has the commercialization of healthcare as a business rendered patients a little less human and maybe a little bit more product yeah. and and in some ways the medical education establishment is is both catching up and and getting ahead and being a counterpoint to, yeah. to to that trend as it were yeah
1: no i think that's a a beautiful way to put it it's now that the healthcare system in america and and anywhere it is you know, you sort of allude to, is it a business? And it is, a what is healthcare with privatized insurance and all these sort of grander issues that we face in America and we don't have enough time to go into all that. Um, I have dear friends that are uh, pediatricians in, uh, in, in town and gosh, they're sometimes seeing 40, you know, kids a day. And, um, and at some point it, you do have to see kids quickly and see, and see patients quickly. And that goes for the other, the adult doctors as well. And what is the driving force for seeing so many patients in such a quick time? And unfortunately the reality is revenue and, and helping people of course, but doing it quickly and efficiently. And, and so there's, there's downsides to that. You, you do become mechanical and you do have to make an effort to make a human connection in a finite amount of time. You can imagine seeing 30, 40 people in a day, you could be really terrible at that. Um, But there is wonderful physicians in this town, uh, adults and pediatrics that do it really well. And that in this day and age with trying to see so many patients with all these super specialties and, you know, that's where it becomes difficult to, um, to really maintain that human relationship, which is, you know, why that some colleagues, they, you, you go out to, uh, Western Nebraska, rural areas where perhaps there is, there, those, those physicians are busy as heck. Um, but there is just that extra emphasis on, on, um, that human element that they're really good at. And, and the same thing, the, the cities like Omaha and stuff, again, great physicians and people doing wonderful things. But with the volume of patients coming in, the, the vast amount of medicines that are there, the technologies that are all there, it becomes, what is the right answer? What's the right medicine? What's the right referral consult you need to do so I can get to the next patient? Um, and that's what I think is my, the fear in medicine right now is it does come to this, this cranking sort of factory of bringing people in, getting people out, getting people diagnosed, getting people out. Um, and, and that's, Sort of what leads to what we talked about before is this self-care, burnout, the emotion of it, and it all has to come to a head at some point.
0: The no, no, what are you seeing know, in your medical students as they look ahead at their careers? What aspirations and expectations are they wanting to place upon their career in terms of resisting this idea of a yeah. factory, a conveyor belt yeah. of medical provision, but instead looking at treating more altruistically yeah. the whole patient, the whole human and not hurrying that building a, a longitudinal right. relationship with with their right. patients
1: you see it all over the map the choices once you're in medical school and once you get through you know you have that altruistic feeling once you get in and then the rigors and all that stuff make your choices jaded a little bit or you want to do an altruistic thing but so people the students make choices on what their future careers are you know there's several Pathways that they kind of look at sometimes. It's one, is it money? You know, do they want to do the rock star sort of thing and get all the, you know, the, the profession that's going to get the most wows or something about money, something about research? Is it education? Is it lifestyle? And I think certainly lifestyle is playing a huge piece of the decision making process of students. And I think it's always been there. Um, but I feel like it's more, and again, my opinion, but I feel like it's more of an emphasis is what is my lifestyle going to be once I get through this gauntlet of training? And am I going to still be in a gauntlet am I, it's, until i down in the grave? <laughs> or is it um, something that I can really sink my teeth into? And I think those are the choices people are making is based on lifestyle, based on, is it fame? Is it research? Do I want to do a, do I want my name on a lot of papers, uh, those sort of things, and I, I, the, I think the pendulum is swinging towards what can I do where my lifestyle is good, I have time for my family. Um, I'm hearing students talk about those things more. I want, I don't want to be like this person who spends their whole life in the hospital or the show, the TV show that you know glorifies this doctor staying in the ER and sleeping on the floor of the ER or or sleeping in a closet at the hospital. And these these things that are just somewhat glorified on TV is, oh man, that's that's what a surgeon is. That's what a doctor is. Um, but the students are wisening up to that and saying, no, There's a, that's where I'm proud of the students is that there's more of a human element to their decisions. And um, not everyone, but there's a fair number that... That's a big part of why they choose to do internal medicine or surgery or, or whatever the, the end game is. I'm hearing more of a human aspect to why they're doing it more than just technically I like surgery or technically I like anesthesia or whatever.
0: In what ways are you trying to shape medical education to better cater to the needs that you see for the professional of the future but also what you're hearing, what you've been describing, yeah. the needs of the student that, that you're hearing now. Right.
1: I think the biggest struggle in in guiding young students is getting them to be true to themselves it, and sort of do lift your head out of that, uh, out of the rut or out of the uh, the trench of edu- the education and the moment that they're in. Lift your head out and look yourself in the mirror and say, what do you want? What do you what is it that you want versus what you think other people want? You know, are you, do, are you becoming a surgeon because it sounds great and it sounds cool and that's what you're supposed to be because you get good grades and all this stuff? Or do you really want to do it? Are you doing something else because you don't think you're good enough and you're not trying to do whatever it is that you thought you wanted to do, but you feel like because you got a bad grade or your score is what it is that you can't get it to it. What I'm trying to do as I guide students is for lack of, again, to not sound like an old curmudgeon is make them <laughs> mature, more mature early and, and to real life issues, to, uh, what is your passion? What is, what fire, what drives you? Cause that's when it's all said and done, that's, what's going to get you up out of bed and go to work. It's what drives you. What's your passion? Um, what can you get out of bed and go to work and say, this is better than staying in bed <laughs> and this is better than quitting um because this child on the other end has cancer and that is huge to me or this uh this elderly woman is having dementia and and alzheimer's like symptoms and this is tragic to me and and i need to do something to help these patients um and that's really difficult when you're a 26 year old 27 year old saying I am not going to worry about what the hundred other students are doing. I'm going to do what what I like. I want to go to, into psychiatry. I want to go into whatever. And there's no glam and glitz in psychiatry uh, that the glam and glitz is, you know, saying you wield a, like a scalpel. And then it is, you know, it is pretty cool. They are what they do is amazing. Um but uh it's really getting the students to embrace their strengths, figure out what they want to do, not what other people want them to do. Um, And I think those that I can connect with and get them to those points, man, it's really great to see somebody come back, you know, email me later after they've matched into whatever residency or whatever and say, man, I think I'm really going to be happy. This is really good. I'm glad I had that hard look at myself or whatever. So,
0: yeah. Well, you made the choice for yourself around working with and in the field of children and cancer so why did you move into that particular direction
1: for me it was you know in medical school you know certainly in before medical school you cancer is something that affects everyone i don't think you can throw a rock in a room without hitting somebody who's either has been affected knows somebody there's just it's too pervasive of a thing and that is what lured me in first, you know, this, gosh, this is something that is just a huge problem. And, uh, and, and then when you bring, I was, I found my comfort zone when dealing with kids. That was most important first. Who am I comfortable with? Because for the longest time I thought I did want to do adult oncology and there's some brilliant people here in Omaha that are leaders internationally in that. And really I wanted to be like them. I and I still do. <laughs> I still want to emulate uh people like uh James Armitage and uh uh who is a household name in our community around the world. I mean, he's just a huge player. And um these are people that I wanted to be like, but then I realized, you know, maybe I'm more comfortable with pediatrics and I really am. That's where my heart and where's my soul is. And then I met families that had cancer. And what I, you know, and I'll be I know this is going on tape for the permanent record, but a little bit of an egotistical thing where I saw people, I was shadowing or I saw other physicians talking to families about it. And I said, I can do that. I want it. I can do it better. You know, it's its to that Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, I want the ball, you know, give me the ball. I want to be the one in charge and I can do it better. I can, you know, and that's, it sounds terrible. But uh once I had those feelings of, I didn't shy away from that conversation. I wanted to be there. I wanted that human connection um, because there's nothing more powerful in my world than to have to tell somebody that their child has cancer. It is the worst thing to do and a thing that you can never take back. You tell that to a mother or a father, you better be darn sure. <laughs> and And because once you even say it, that changes that person's trajectory and journey for the rest of their life. There's no turning back. That to me was something that's powerful, um, that I embraced and yeah, I'm not good at it. I, if I ever say that I'm good, good at it, then I need to quit because you have to be uncomfortable with it. It has to be uncomfortable because my gosh, it's not such a terrible thing to have to tell a family, but, um, and I'm not, I, i I'm constantly walking out of rooms thinking, gosh, why did I say that? Why did I say it like this? Why did I say, why did I use this word? Or, you know, why was I fiddling with my finger? You know, I wonder if that dad noticed that I was, twi- you know, fidgeting while I was saying it or, you know, all these things that go through your head. And in the moment, I hate it. When I walk out of the room, I think, okay, I'm still engaged. I'm, It's real, you know, and it's not numb. Um, those are beautiful things to me. And that's why I was driven to that, to, to cancer and, and pediatric cancer was that huge lifelong commitment to a family. Um, from diagnosis to cure to rehab to seeing the best joy I get is a postcard from somebody who's in, who's graduating high school or is at the level of the, um, college or whatever the case may be.
0: We've been talking so far, and I've been mentally framing this idea of you working towards other people, whether it's students or your patients or families or other people. You seem very empathetic, and and I have to ask: Have you been on the receiving end? Have you have you had to uh, experience someone else uh, showing you that kind of empathy? You know, it's
1: there's been times where, luckily and fortunately for, I I say luck a lot of time, but grace because, I you know that I have not been affected by cancer, but, you know, certainly my wife's mother, uh, my wife even had a scare uh, and that shook my world. And it, it, you know, luckily everything was negative and everything was fine, but my goodness, to be on the other side, especially to think that your loved one, your wife for 13 years, you know, something could be wrong. Whoa. And just the thought. And so that really put it in perspective, just the thought of somebody saying that this might be could be might be we have to do some more testing and all this uh that but that could be cancer whoa somebody said that to me and yeah and it's it shakes your world a little bit but not just that but just any emotion that you have um we had a you know i I don't know if it's hard to even talk about this a little bit but you know, we, there was between our first and second child, we, we lost a child, we lost a, uh, had a miscarriage and, you know, and that's, you know, people tell you it happens all the time and every, you know, everybody goes through it. And, um, but when you're told on that other end, you, you see how important it is for a doctor to be able to have that human connection and not make it such a trivial, not just say, oh, it happens to everyone, you know, or many people go through this, you'll get through it. And luckily the person who told us didn't do that. They were more human than that. But goodness, those are raw situations. But everybody, whatever the case may be, whoever has those experiences, it's so important to be real and be human, you know, in
0: in those situations. Yeah. So if you say to me, cancer and children, it just conjures up this horrific set of terrifying, emotional, traumatic images and reactions. Yeah. And you're the person that actually has to deal with that day in, yeah. day out. And indeed you said you need to wake up in the morning and be passionate about that yeah. because that's what you're going to jump out yeah. of bed for. Yeah. How do you not only get through the day, but how do you get through the week, yeah. the month, the years? Yeah. It's hard.
1: It's hard. I don't have a, the right way to do it. I think I have a way that's for me. Um, but you know, every day is difficult so I think I, and I had a, a mentor of mine in medical school here uh, Dr. Lyons I don't know if he won't remember me he's still practicing but he uh, said if you ever walk out of a room and you're not affected then that's a problem you need to probably quit <laughs> because if you're telling people this horrible news and these things and you're not somehow taken by it that's a problem but I ha- you have to Separate it a little bit and that's easier said than done. I don't do it well at times. Uh, Sometimes I can, sometimes I really can't and I haven't mastered that art. I have a journal, you know, I I write every child I meet, I write it down and I write, uh, it's something I keep private. I I write, what is it unique about that person uh, or that child? whether it's, you know, somebody, your kid does floss or, you know, whatever the, <laughs> I had this little girl who taught me every dance in the world from, you know, the stanky leg to, you know, everything, <laughs> but, and I can't do any of it, but, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, something unique about that family and, and that's how I sort of process. Um, when I lose a child, I still, I can name every child that has died that I've taken care of and it's just, and I, I don't ever want to forget that, you know, like, Every name, you know, Jada, Julia, you know, every, everyone. And, uh, but it's hard. I, you, you go home, you hold, you, you hug your kids and you say, you know, it wasn't us today, you know, it wasn't. And that's what I fear. That's the piece that I say it's lucky. Why me? Not them. I went through a really hard time in training. When going through training, I had a small child. I had my little boy, Shrey, and I would go home and have so much guilt. Uh, about this stuff. And, um, somehow you got to come to a place and say "It, it, it is the way it is. This is the world and this is what I chose to do. And it could be me the next time around, but it's not today. And, uh, and you have your family, you have your, your support structure and those sort of things. But yeah, and luckily I have a wife in, in medicine as well. And we, so we can relate. Um, and we, we know how to separate it. I don't come home and, uh, you know, just vent about everything I used to, um, but it doesn't get you anywhere.
0: You are teaching medical students how to have empathy and deepen their human uh, relational skills, while at the same time needing to teach them how to protect themselves from over-empathizing to the point where they can't function themselves as humans because it's too burdensome. Right. How do you teach students to walk that line?
1: I think the first thing you have to do is be willing to talk about it. You have to have, you have to open up the dialogue. You have to be um, you have to constantly bring that to the forefront just as much as you do. What's the diagnosis of leukemia in kids? Tell me the you know the presenting features of a kid with cancer. The same thing. we have to make that. I make it a part of my education every time I'm on service on Friday. We talk about self-care. We talk about how um, my, you know, I, I refer a beautiful article. Uh, from Adam Hill, who's a colleague and friend of mine who, who wrote a beautiful, just one and a half page on his story. He was a, and he goes around and he talks about it. He was a felt, it was a co-trainee of mine at Duke and, and, um, went through serious depression, alcoholism while he was in training, uh, got to the point where he was, uh, uh, suicidal. And, um, and I bring that article and he wrote this and he, you know, got it published in JAMA in three seconds. They took it and, but to talk about it, to tell them, figure out, be active in the process of self care. You know, and this term, this kind of coined term of self care, which is whatever term you want to use, but my gosh, just be willing to be vulnerable. Ask your peers if you notice something, say, hey, the worst they can do is say, everything's fine, leave me alone. But at least you can ask and recognize these things because it's an issue. We physician suicide rate is high. It's the highest of any profession, and uh, and it's an alarming, and it's rising at an alarming rate. Um, Yet we don't talk about it. We talk about it in the shadows, and we talk about it in the back hallways, and um, suicide and depression and mental health. Um, Within the context of this conversation, is those things in the context of healthcare? Whether it's the nurse, the pharmacist, the medical student, Um, people are bringing their own experiences to the table. And the experiences that they see in the hospital are only either going to compound or you you bring your own story to that uh, to that patient's story, and you got to be willing to talk about it and if something's wrong, if something, how you deal with it well too. I'm saying all the negative things, but if you deal with something well, share it and talk about it um, And I think that's how you that's how you grow, that's how you be, bring that human element back to the patients and never forget why you got into medicine in the first place.
0: Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's Radio Show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. In conversation with Dr. Sashi Patel. Sashi, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely, it was wonderful an honor. Thank you for having me.
1: That was uh, quite, uh, quite the intro. It was, <laughs> and,
0: and that's because you wrote it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would love. It. I should have started with first off, father, husband, uh, uh, and then doctor last. No, but, no, uh,
0: end yeah. strong. Yeah, end strong. <laughs> I was like, I'm- That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.